Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Me, well, I've had a rather busy few months, and seems like the year just started, and it's already near the end of July. So, that together with the fact that I've lost a little bit of information last week, uh, might slow the works down a little bit around here. So, please bear with me if I miss a week here or there. And but thank you all so much for being here and for continuing to support the podcast. It means the world to me that you keep coming back to listen. So let's get on with it. Love triangles are nothing new in the true crime world. Heck, they're nothing new in the world at all. Sometimes folks just do things that they hadn't ought to do and leads to more things that they hadn't ought to do until they end up doing way more than they ought to done, such as is our story today. It happened quite a while back, and that means that things are done a sight different than they are today, which complicated the whole mess that much more especially when you have a chivalrous southern aristocrat involved in the whole thing. Sit on back there and let me tell you about the story known as the Kentucky Tragedy. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. might say the fulcrum of this whole leverage of a mess called the Kentucky Tragedy would be a lady by the name of Anna Cook. One could also say that she's the most mysterious of the three contestants we're dealing with today. Most of what is known about her comes from two documents that are, for the most part, in direct opposition to each other. One would be the confessions of Jeroboam Beecham, with the other being the vindication of the character of the late Colonel Solomon, P. Sharp, which was written by his brother. 
Now, both documents agree that Anna Cook was a well-read, unconventional, and disdainful of society and all of its hoity-toity rules. Now, there were many authors who wrote about the tragedy who portray her as a great beauty, but to Dr. Lander Sharp, who wrote the book about his brother, she was in no way handsome or desirable, and her husband, though deeply in love with her, had little to say about Anna's appearance, too, which makes one wonder if indeed there was something about what Doc Sharp had to say. Now, the Cooks were a family of Virginia aristocrats who, whose fortune was slipping away, down, going down the tubes after the death of Anna's father. And that led them to the Kentucky for, for a fresh start. Apparently, the family income dropped over with old man Cook. Anna, with her mother and at least five brothers, set up a whole new estate called Retirement outside of Bowling Green. And among them, they owned at least three dozen slaves. I wouldn't mind setting up a little retirement myself, but I wouldn't do it quite like that. As the oldest daughter in a respectable family, Anna wouldn't have had a, any uh, shortage of young suitors. But even if she wasn't a drop-dead beauty, she was vivacious and popular as a young woman. But in her most obvious defiance of social norms, Anna Cook remained unmarried because, well, you know, that's exactly what she wanted. As she grew older, Anna's uncommon beliefs and behaviors started to rub the Bowling Green Society rhubarb in the wrong direction. And that led to all the local society folk to start staying hell away from her and slamming doors in her face when she showed up. She finally gave up on social climbing and just stayed home where she got into reading romance novels of the day. And that was kind of like watching General Hospital on paper, I guess. But Anna hadn't completely withdrawn from society. She was still seen in the company of young men about the area. Of course, with with it being the time in history that it was in this country, uh, her refusing to marry got the rumor mill fired up about sexual behavior. And uh, like it was anybody's business but hers in the first place. But, well, as it turned out, all of that proved true in 1820 when 35-year-old Anna Cook became pregnant. The baby was delivered stillborn that June. She immediately ran around telling anybody she could back into a corner and yak it that she had been seduced and abandoned by Colonel Solomon Sharp. And she told even told everybody the date of the conception, which was Sunday, September 18th, 1819, while Colonel Sharp's wife, Eliza, was at church. And I think that's what's referred to today as a quickie. But of, of course, the length of time the church lasted back then, I, I don't know if it could even be called that. Who the heck was Solomon Sharp? <clears throat> well, the Sharp family lived near the Cooks, and Anna Cook had known Solomon for at least 12 years. He'd come up from being dirt poor, then punched, kicked, and scratched his way to a position of wealth and power. He was the most successful lawyer in Bowling Green. He held the rank of colonel in the state militia. He owned 3,600 acres of land, and at the age of 24 became a U.S. congressman. That man shoehorned a right smart bit of living into just 24 years. Now, Colonel Sharp was a rising star in Kentucky politics. John C. Calhoun said that <clears throat> Solomon Sharp has few superiors his age in any part of the country. 
John Quincy Adams himself called him the brainiest man to ever come across the Allegheny Mountains. Solomon Sharp also had better enemies in Kentucky politics, and in 1821, they used Dana Cook's accusation to try to derail his bid for state attorney general. They broadsided Mr. Sharp and charged him with seducing Anna Cook. The state senate formed a committee to investigate the matter, which found the charge to be wholly groundless and confirmed Sharp as attorney general. Now, it probably will never be known for sure whether Mr. Sharp had the proper relation, improper relations, I guess you'd say, with Anna Cook and such to uh, substantiate the charge, but he gave the appearance of a man who was happily married and whose wife Eliza was expecting their first child in 1819. This is where I pictured him up and there wagging his finger in the face of the newspaper reporters going, I did not have relations with that woman, Miss Cook. While his wife stood next to him with a big smile painted on her face outside, while once she got him home, she was ready to rip his lungs out inside. Yeah, folks, if you look back through history, politics has always been pretty much cutthroat. What was meant back then with the charge of seduction was taking a young woman's virtue with the false promise of marriage. Today it's called breach of promise, and yes, it's still a law in some states, and in more states actually than you'd think, even though you never see it enforced anymore. Nobody back then believed that the 35-year-old Anna Cook's virtue was still intact enough to, you know, to be taken, and with a <clears throat> child on the way, and wouldn't or by a man with a child on the way, and it, it, besides, if they did have any relations, Anna was well aware that Mr. Sharp was already married, and the way folks saw it, if it had been a true case of seduction, her brothers would have been honor-bound, I guess by the Southern Aristocrat Handbook or something, to seek retribution from Mr. Sharp. Most of the time, that considered or consisted of one complimentary ass whipping dealt out in an orderly or, I guess, disorderly fashion, depending on the organizational skills of the whipper. Her brothers did absolutely nothing to defend her honor, which said a whole lot folks around them parts. So Anna went out and found somebody that would take care of her business. Enter one Jeroboam Beecham. It's a hard one to pronounce the way it's spelled, I tell you. It's pronounced Beecham. Uh, as a boy, Jeroboam Orville Beecham was a pretty intelligent feller. Uh, he probably exaggerated a mite when he claimed that he showed early signs of indications of being a genius. I only question him on that point because of where this is headed. He was given a good education at an age 16, set out on his own, trying his hand at storekeeping and teaching before settling in a career in law, or on a career in law. A lot like Miss Cook, Mr. Beecham was strong-willed and one might say eccentric. He viewed himself as above the petty plebes of any society anywhere. He was violent, unruly, vindictive, and, and more than one friend indicated that he never knew him to do an act of any kind, which of any indication of any soul and real dignity whatsoever. And folks, that was his friend. By age 18, he had been formally charged with fathering a child out of wedlock and was rumored to have fathered many more out of wedlock. Mr. Beecham was 18 years old when the news of Anna Cook's seduction was made public. And when he learned that, 
you know, that, or that she was living nearby in Bowling Green for some odd reason. After all he'd done, he got all worked up over the case and become bound and determined to meet her. The details of their meeting are only known through Mr. Beecham's account. He was able to squirrel his way into her life on the pretense of using her extensive library. Mr. Beecham managed to meet the reclusive Miss Cook. I gotta say, that's quite an extent to go to, to for a pickup line, but I guess a tail hound gotta do what a tail hound gotta do back in the day. Most folks believe that Mr. Beecham was more attracted by her status as a fallen woman. You see, folks, that way he could go start a bunch of trouble and have a real excuse for it. At least to many folks, that was the way they was thinking. Over the course of several meetings, the two lovebirds found that they shared interest in romantic novels and the poetry of Byron. Though she was 17 years older than Mr. Beecham, he fell madly in love with Miss Anna Cook. Anna said she loved him as well, so when Mr. Beecham asked for her hand in marriage, she told him that the hand which should receive hers would have to avenge the injury a villain had done her. Her heart could never cease to ache until bad old Colonel Sharp was planted six feet under some fine Kentucky bluegrass by her doings. In other words, will you kill him for me? So Mr. Beecham jumped all over that and took on the task of planning the end of the evil cad, Mr. Sharp. It was that very thought process, actually, that led to the Civil War in this country. Even though there wasn't a shred of evidence that Colonel Sharp had, in reality, done anything at all to Anna Cook. Boy, DNA would have been a mofo in this case, wouldn't it? (laughs) The deviant claimed that in 1821, he went all the way to Frankfurt to challenge Colonel Sharp in a duel. Folks, that's about a 300-mile round trip on a horse. Looks like Mr. Beecham had it bad. He said that Colonel Sharp refused to fight, but he kept pursuing him in a threatening manner until Colonel Sharp fell to his knees and begged for his life. There were no eyewitnesses, of course, and like the charge of seduction, the Southern Aristocrat Handbook would have dictated the outcome if if it actually had happened. So no man could survive Kentucky politics after declining to duel in such a cowardly fashion. Sounds to me like he was trying to make it sound impossible for him to kill the man in hopes that Miss Cook might just let it all go and drop the whole thing. And it may have worked, at least for a little while. In 1824, Anna Cook agreed to marry Joe Boehm Beecham with Colonel Sharp still sucking wind. But according to Mr. Beecham, they kept right on plotting his murder. In 1825, after his tenure as Attorney General, Colonel Sharp campaigned for General Assembly, and his opponents revived the charge that he'd seduced Anna Cook. By the time the news reached the Beechams, it included an additional charge that Colonel Sharp had obtained a certificate from the midwife who delivered the stillborn baby, claiming that the infant was mulatto. The charge that his wife had had sex with the black man was more than Mr. Beecham could bear, and it was still Colonel Sharp's fault. How, I don't know, but he set off again for Frankfurt, bent on murder. Now, folks, I don't know how damn ridiculous this gets, but we're about to find out. Stick around, I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley.
On the night of November 6, 1825, Jeroboam Beecham put on some kind of half-wit disguise and armed himself with a large butcher knife that I reckon he probably grabbed out of his kitchen drawer. Now, he had sharpened it on both edges and dipped it in poison just to make it that much more deadly. He had already rode all over to Frankfurt again because, try as he might, he couldn't catch Colonel Sharp in Bowling Green long enough to knock him off. He knocked on the door of Colonel Sharp around 2 o'clock in the morning. Colonel Sharp came outside to see who it was, and according to Mr. Beecham, he plunged a knife into Colonel Sharp's heart, saying, Die, you villain. The wound was actually in the abdomen and was indeed fatal to Colonel Sharp because he died soon after being stabbed. First thing police thought was that it was Colonel Sharp's political opponent taking him out, but when it was learned that Jeroboam Beecham the husband of Anna Cook, had been in Frankfurt that day. He became the number one suspect. Four days later, a patrol arrived at retirement, pounced on and arrested Mr. Beecham with the gusto of a hound dog. They then dragged him back to Frankfurt to face the music. The trial of Jeroboam Beecham lasted 11 days and included testimony from dozens of witnesses, and that was unheard of back then, folks, for a trial to last that long. Mr. Beecham pled not guilty, and the evidence against him was almost entirely circumstantial. Neither side mentioned charges of seduction. The defense didn't want to raise the possibility that Mr. Beecham had been seeking revenge, and the prosecution didn't want the jury to think that murder was justified. That would be according to the Southern Aristocrat Handbook, of course. Consequently, the prosecution made no attempt to establish a motive for the murder, which was another very, very rare thing to happen for that day and time. It looked like the trial was going Mr. Beecham's way until John Lowe, a friend and neighbor of the Beecham's, testified that they'd tried to buy him off to lie like a cheap carpet and commit perjury. He brought to the stand a letter the Beecham's had given him outlining what they wanted him to say and do, as well as a 7,000-word document coaching Mr. Lowe on what to say and how to do it. Among other falsehoods, Mr. Lowe was to say that Jeroboam Beecham believed that the seduction story was a lie fabricated by Colonel Sharp's enemies and that he had no quarrel with Colonel Sharp and always spoke well of him. Now, Mr. Lowe, of course, took the bribe money to the bank, promptly notified the police afterward. A rat got to make a bank if he's going to be a rat before selling him down the river. That did it. Mr. Beecham's attorney couldn't undo that much damage, and the jury deliberated for less than an hour, following a different handbook, of course, called the law, before returning a verdict of guilty. Jeroboam Beecham was sentenced to hang on June 16, 1826. Anna was so tore up that she refused to leave her husband's side, so they just threw her in the cell with him, which was quite a step down from what both of them had been used to. It was a windowless dungeon, accessible by crawling through a trap door. Together in the cell, the Beechams wrote their whole side of the story, a document which they believed would save Jeroboam from the gallows. I reckon because it must have been written according to the Southern Aristocrat Handbook, which he must have had a pocket version of to use as a reference while writing it. Now, surely, everybody would be able to see what an honorable man he was and what a no-good scoundrel Colonel Sharp was when they read this. Of course, they 
couldn't resist adding a section of the document describing how their love worked, recounting how Solomon Sharp had seduced and abandoned the worthy orphan female like Anna Cook and revealing how he, the cowardly Sharp, had refused the duel. The genius was so caught up in himself that he didn't realize that he'd just admitted to the murder that he'd denied committing. I reckon the Beecham's believed that the confession would convince the governor and the people of Kentucky that the act was justified and they would soon open the cell door and just let them both crawl out. Now, the confession was finished before the execution, but Mr. Beecham was unable to find a publisher. Now, I bet that was a shocker to somebody who thought that the world stood still and awaited his very word to continue. Now, in desperation, the entitled brat petitioned the governor for a 30-day reprieve so he could finish up the publication of his so-called confession. The governor stopped laughing long enough to refuse. Well, with all hope gone now, Anna and Jeroboam decided to commit suicide together. So I guess when all else fails, poor Romeo and Juliet. Now, Anna had smuggled a bottle of laudanum into the cell, concealed in her bosom, Now, where no respectable guard would dare search. Apparently, she didn't like the dungeon as much as she thought she would and was coming and going at will. After leaving instructions for their burial, they did laudanum shots until the bottle was empty, and but it didn't kill them. Laudanum was a mixture of cocaine derivative and an opiate derivative, pretty much cocaine and morphine. And on the morning of the hanging, after nursing them both back from what was probably a granddaddy of a hangover, they had tried it again. With a small knife, Anna had stabbed herself right in the abdomen. Then Jeroboam took the knife and did the same thing. I guess he still thought that's where their heart were. They grabbed Anna and rushed her to the doctor, where she lingered for a few hours. They snatched up Jeroboam and headed off for what he thought was the doctor's office, I guess. They were actually rushing him to the gallows so they could hang him before he died. He had the gall to ask if they would allow him to stop by the doctor's office and see Anna first. And believe it or not, they took him by. He watched as Anna died. As that happened, or... He was about to fade out from blood loss, and they yanked him up and rode like hell-bent for leather over to the gallows for his hemp necktie party. Now, 5,000 people were already gathered outside Frankfurt to witness the execution. As he was taken to the gallows, he raised the curtains on the wagon so he could wave at the onlookers. So So they say, at the execution grounds, the crowd expected Mr. Beecham to contritely address him, but he wasn't able to do so. He asked, did ask for a glass of water, and as they dragged him up the gallows steps and held him up for the deuce to be slipped around his head, and then they threw him down the trap door because he couldn't stand on his own. Wouldn't want to cheat the hangman out of his pay and investment in a rope, would we? Now, some accounts say that Mr. Beecham was already dead when they dropped him, but the others said he wasn't. Now, he sure was by the time they were done. No, I can tell you that. The Confessions of Jeroboam Beecham was published after the execution and laid the foundation, well, or myth, of the Kentucky tragedy. Most folks think it ought to be in the fiction section of the library. Now, Jeroboam Beecham left behind the following instructions for the couple's burial. Now, directions, or 
directions of our burials, what it's titled. We do not wish our faces uncovered after we are shrouded, particularly after we are removed from Bloomfield. We wish to be placed with my wife's head on my right arm and that confined around upon her bosom. J.O. Beecham. Now, a month before the execution, Anna Beecham wrote a manifesto of an epithet and for her tombstone and a, to just try to gain some sympathy. She attempted to have it published in a newspaper. Like the confession, the epitaph was published and wasn't published until their deaths and after the news reporters stopped laughing at it. The burial instructions were followed to the letter, believe it or not. Jeroboam and Anna Beecham were buried together in a single coffin in Maple Grove Cemetery, Bloomfield, Kentucky. Anna's manifesto was literally carved into the headstone, and I expect uh, Carver's arms were about wore out by the time they got done. I'll spare you the whole drawn-out thing, but uh, I will put it up on Facebook group for your viewing pleasure, should you care to look at it. But I hope you got something out of our story today. It's another one that needed telling. If you did, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe or follow uh, wherever you're listening at to get notified of new episodes. Come on over to our Facebook group, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast, where we talk about everything Appalachian or about anything else you want to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I'll see you then.